Hello and welcome to the Badges Podcast, brought to you by the British Association for Japanese Studies. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, MA in Cultural Heritage, Museum Studies, and Specialist in Japanese War Heritage. In this episode, I'm joined by Mark Player, PhD in the Department of Film, Theatre and Media Studies at the University of Reading, and winner of the 2021 Ian Nish Prize for his article, Utopia, an early history of peer and its role in Japan's self-made film culture. Mark walks us through the punk film scene of the 1970s and early 80s Japan, the legacy of peer magazine on the scene, and his personal favourites from the genre. We hope you enjoy the show. Good evening, Mark. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Well, uh, good evening. Thank you. So let's start off with uh, introductions. What's your affiliation with badges and what are your own research areas? Uh, yes, so, um, my affiliation with badges, I uh, joined as a kind of student member back in 2016. And uh, at the time, well, I'd, I'd recently not long started a PhD, my PhD then. Uh, so my, uh, I just recently completed actually at the University of Reading. Well, I specialise in, uh, in Japanese cinema, which I've, I've been doing for, uh, well, a number of years now. Uh, but my, my PhD was entitled uh, Japanese Film Production During the Punk Era, which kind of looked at uh, yeah, various kind of um, shifts in film production, as the thesis name kind of applies, during that punk era, which is I sort of loosely define as kind of the, from the mid-70s until kind of the early 1990s. And a lot of the... Uh, yeah, a lot of the filmmakers that were kind of involved in that uh, had a background in producing kind of these sort of DIY or do-it-yourself films using 8mm and sometimes kind of 16mm. And that was a phenomenon that in Japan is referred to as Jishu Sesaku Ega, which kind of means, yeah, self-made films. And so it was kind of uh, so part of the, so something I was kind of interested in uh, with my, when, when researching the thesis was, yeah, sort of diving into that kind of culture as well. Although not everyone that was involved in that culture was kind of involved in the punk scene necessarily. The thesis kind of focused on that, if anything, just as a way to kind of put a bit of a container around it because there was like, you know, thousands of people at the time, young people mostly making these kinds of films. So it was a way just to kind of help um, frame uh, frame my, my topic a little bit. But I started sort of looking more broadly in, into more, yeah, more broadly into the kind of the subject of Jishu filmmaking as well. Yeah, so that took, um, yeah, the thesis, I did it part-time, so it took me about seven years. So I, I spent, uh, yeah, spent a very long time sort of thinking about that, yeah, like sort of, yeah, researching that era and uh, trying to track down some of the filmmakers. Some of them have gone on to be quite famous, uh, some of them not so much. So part, yeah, part of that, part of uh, what I was kind of interested in uh, with this thesis and just more, more broadly was, yeah, trying to sort of actually track down the filmmakers and, you know, try and get things in their words. Cause a lot of this, it's been touched on before a little bit in other scholarship, but uh, I'm one of the, I don't think I'm the very first, but I'm certainly one of the first who's actually starting to kind of like probe into this uh, subject, into this kind of era of and particular mode of filmmaking in to this kind of level of, to this level of detail. I don't know. Uh, there was a punk scene in Japan. It's news to me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There was, um, yeah. So that kind of, well, it sort of yeah, began kind of, I think a lot of people tend to consider it as starting kind of 1978, 1979, although there are kind of, I guess, proto punk precursors to that. Uh, the first sort of 
wave, I suppose, of that is very much indebted to uh, the punk music of Britain uh, and uh, America a little bit. But they they were really uh, a lot of the bands that were starting out in Tokyo at the time in the late seventies were really keen on you know bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash and uh, and sort of and groups like that. And then it kind of in the nineteen eighties it kind of starts to kind of uh, find its kind of own identity. So you get a lot more sort of hardcore punk styles, more kind of extreme sort of styles of music, um, noise music kind of spun out of that as well. I see. Fascinating. Uh, so the article for which you, you were awarded the Ian Nish Prize, Utopia, an early history of Pia and its role in Japan's self-made film culture, looks at, as you mentioned, Jishu Seisaku Ega, or self-made films. What exactly is a self-made film and how does it vary from independent cinema elsewhere? Yeah, so, I mean, a more literal translation of Jishu Seisaku Ega would be something like kind of autonomously produced films. I don't know if that makes it, it's kind of a clunkier translation, but that might <laughs> help in some ways that sometimes that kind of helps sort of distinguish it. Um, so, I mean, how I would sort of define it is that it's uh, ostensibly a kind of a mode of non-professional filmmaking that was kind of practiced by those who had, I guess, little to no kind of filmmaking experience, and nor did they have any sort of uh, meaningful connection uh, with the professional film industry. Although over time, that distinction becomes kind of blurred over time. Um, it's sort of tempting to kind of call them amateur films or even kind of home movies. And, and I think a lot of uh, people who are kind of sceptical of that kind of, you know, making films on 8mm and other like readily accessible formats, we don't, it's quite easy to sort of think of them as not being kind of, I guess, proper films, in quotes. Um, but that's not necessarily, with Jishu Sesaku or Jishu Ega rather, or self-made films, that wasn't sort of strict, that it's not untrue, but it's kind of not true either because a lot, there's a lot of sophistication in, um, in how a lot of those films were made. And that kind of, in my mind at least, it kind of transcends the term of amateur. So you have some very, um, so there were some very, you know, surprisingly, um, uh, yeah, so, yeah, so, uh, sophisticated, both in terms of sort of narrative structure, but also in terms of like uh, style as well. You know, you have some quite ambitious works both short and feature length um, in the sort of, yeah, in the, in the 1970s and 80s. And, and even, and this is, this continues to this sort of day as well. Like my main, the main focus of my article is that kind of uh, early, that sort of early period where it's, it's mostly on eight millimeter. Um, it's also kind of tempting to kind of refer to it as kind of independent cinema, um, which is uh, again, not, not kind of untrue, uh, but then at the same time, uh, independent film, or uh, I think Dokuritsu Ega is how they sort of refer to it. It's referred to in Japanese. That has a kind of a, a particular meaning in the context of the Japanese film industry that's not uh, not necessarily conducive to what we kind of consider independent cinema, I guess, kind of in, in the West. Mm. So uh, independent, well, Dokuritsu Ega in Japan, uh, and sometimes they just sort of use the term indie. indie. They just, they kind of just, They've, they use a, like a loan word for it as well. And that ostensibly refers to films that are not made by, say, like a major company, like a studio or something like that, but they're still kind of made within the context of professional film production. So that could mean that they've had some sort of professional funding, possibly from a smaller, uh, from a smaller company. 
Uh, it could mean that uh, they, you know, they're using kind of professional actors, although not necessarily famous actors, but professional ones. Uh, and also, a lot of these indie films have some kind of, or can have some kind of uh, distribution negotiated. There's a lot of um, cross-funding between uh, TV companies um, fund fund films a lot in Japan. There's also kind of production committees that are kind of uh, made up of various kind of companies, and they all have a different stake in in that uh, in in the in the in the making of the film. So. Uh, when we sort of talk of sort of self-made films, where I'm sort of talking, well, me and, and and others who have also started to talk about this in recent years, we're talking about films that are completely made completely outside of the paradigm of professional film production. So there's no sets, uh, no kind of studio kind of facilities. Um, I guess or kind of a to think of kind of like a Western kind of analog uh, to this. There is uh, some parallels to be drawn between, say, the self-made filmmaking that went on. Uh, that went on in Japan, and the sort of the no wave filmmaking movement that kind of happened in sort of New York in sort of the mid seventies to mid eighties. So again, sort of stripped down, mostly kind of like guerrilla kind of based filmmaking. So a lot of stuff done on the street, non professionals, kind of made by students a lot of the time. Uh, tended to emphasise um, style or the or the sort they or an emphasis on like the moment of production over say plot or theme although some although some self-made films are actually quite quite detailed in their narrative um and uh and also something to be i guess something to be mindful of is that this is not necessarily a phenomenon that was unique to Japan. Obviously, we had the, the no wave thing that I sort of just mentioned, but also, I mean, Hong Kong had an eight millimeter filmmaking scene at roughly the same time, for example. And a lot of countries, as soon as these, te- as soon as a uh, eight millimeter kind of became uh, cheaper, more accessible, especially the kind of the advent of sort of synchronized sound, Super Eight, which kind of came onto the market, sort of 1973, 1974. So. You didn't have to worry about syncing your audio to your footage, so that meant you could sort of shoot narrative films with, say, dialogue scenes a lot easier than you could say in previous years. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was another kind of another factor in why, you know, why the 1970s. That's kind of one reason. Uh, but something else that was kind of unique. Um, but well, so I say that you know, self-made uh, Jishu Ega was not that kind of filmmaking wasn't necessarily unique to Japan. What was unique was the scale of it. I think as I kind of mentioned earlier, there's um, yeah, thousands of young people, mostly uh, sort of high school and university students, and also some people who had sort of um, graduated as well, but were still continuing to kind of make films. Um, uh, a, lot, a lot of the time, it was just them kind of banding together with their, with their mates, uh, either saving up, or borrowing a camera and yeah, just kind of like uh, getting together. Yeah. with getting together with like-minded peers and just kind of making the stuff that they kind of want to make. And, uh, and another kind of, another thing that was kind of interesting, certainly from the Japanese perspective was this also kind of extended to exhibition. So self-made filmmakers would organize their own screening events. And these were kind of known as, there's a couple of terms for this, either sort of Jishu Joe, which kind of literally means kind of self-screening, or Joe Kai, which kind of refers to what's Joe being screening and sort of Kai meaning kind of meeting. So, and these sort of took place um, all around Japan. I mean, Tokyo was a particular kind of hub for this kind of thing, but there was a big filmmaking scene in Osaka, uh, for example. Um, 
I've also, in some of my wider research, there were, I've been able to track uh, filmmaking scenes as far as Sapporo, sort of in the north, and sort of Fukuoka, kind of in the, uh, in the southwest. And these kinds of screenings took place in various kind of like uh, predominantly non-cinema venues. Uh, so cafes, bars. Um, I've even found examples of like uh, screenings in abandoned buildings, screenings in strip clubs, uh, any, anywhere that there's like a, a flat surface that you can project a film on, they, they pretty much sort of did it. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, and then obviously over time, this started to, as this kind of culture started to kind of gain traction and was starting to be noticed by the, the film industry sort of took notice of this kind of in the late 70s. And this is kind of where I expect our, our conversation with uh, relating to peer will sort of, will, I guess we'll kind of go further in that direction. But as soon as it started to kind of gain uh, some more traction, they, then these films would start to be presented in sort of cinema venues, well, to the best of their ability, because most Japanese cinemas weren't kind of equipped with eight millimeter filmmaking facilities. But then those who were able to kind of shoot on 16 millimeter, uh, which was not uncommon, but it was certainly not as common as the eight millimeter production. You know, they obviously there was a bit more, um, it was easier for them to kind of screen their films as cinemas because, you know, a lot of, especially kind of like, uh, cause also around this time, you've got, um, an increase in what were called, uh, mini theaters, which are kind of like just small, um, independently ran cinemas. And a lot of the, the people who operate those cinemas are very kind of sympathetic to the, to sort of to Jishu filmmaking and, and would and those that they could screen they they would screen. So, what was Pierre Magazine and why was it so central to self-made film culture? Yeah, so Pierre Magazine uh, it originally started as a kind of Tokyo entertainment listings magazine, uh, which began in the summer of 1972. Um, it was it's basically. Um, at the time, it was basically kind of, I guess, to think of like a British equivalent, it'd be something similar to like a timeout or something like that, which kind of advertises, which in that magazine kind of advertises sort of things to do in London. Pierre kind of started in a, in a similar vein to that, where it initially provided kind of listings for film screenings, uh, live music and theatre. But then over time, that kind of quickly expanded to include kind of other mediums. So it, uh, it would sort of start to do TV and radio listings, a little bit like uh, like the Radio Times, for example, but also things like art exhibitions, uh, new book releases, public lectures, uh, basically anything of kind of cultural note that they could sort of provide in a sort of a list kind of format. They they would sort of include it. Basically, it was very very inclusive in that respect, and um, uh, something that Peer was kind of at the forefront of doing was that it was it was kind of willing to advertise these kind of self-organized film screening events uh, that I mentioned uh, a minute ago, these were Jishu Joei and sort of Joe Kai, and they would let self-made filmmakers uh, submit their listings and they, would, and they would publish that information for free. And that was a great way for filmmakers to, uh, well, certainly sort of self-made filmmakers or kind of aspiring filmmakers or those who were kind of interested in film but wanted to look at kind of, say, I guess, alternative film-going experiences. They would sort of turn to the pages of Pia to look those things up and the magazine got very uh over the years it got very good at finding ways of making this information accessible so rather than just sort of long blocks of text they'd provide you know there's like there's maps in these magazines pointing out okay these are all the cinemas in this area and that's what this these are the films that are showing in those cinemas on those dates 
So it was very, um, it found lots of creative ways of getting the information out there, which, you know, considering this is, you know, in the 1970s, this is before the internet, you know, way before the internet. So this is for a lot of these kinds of events, that was kind of the only way of getting the information out there. Uh, self-made filmmakers prior to that had relied mostly on kind of things, you know, word of mouth, uh, flyers, uh, that sort of thing. But once, once Pia came onto the scene, the self-made filmmaking kind of culture of which there were several communities scattered around Japan and also just scattered around Tokyo because you know, obviously Tokyo is a very, very large city. And thanks to Pia, all these filmmakers could sort of start to get a sense of who else was making films. And then obviously that would then lead to collaborations and, and, others, and, other, and other opportunities. But then Pia wasn't the kind of, it wasn't the only magazine to provide kind of these kinds of listings. I mean, as uh, I, I mentioned in, in the article, uh, a kind of a rival publication called City Road. Although what was kind of different, I suppose, that City Road was more of a general magazine. So it had like interviews of people and like feature articles and it had some listings, but it wasn't kind of comprehensive. Whereas Peer was just pure information. And that was kind of its USP at the time. Plus the fact that it was willing to um, not kind of, I guess, discriminate between, uh, I guess, what we could sort of broadly refer to as mainstream film releases and kind of more, you know, sort of, self-produced sort of film releases and then uh over time the magazine then decided to um as a way to support this community further then decided well how about we start organizing our own screening events for filmmakers this uh, culminated into the um the peer film festival but then they also had a few trial runs at that sort of leading up to that so uh, most notably the peer cinema boutique which was a kind of a regular screening every sort of couple of months they would sort of do just like a one night thing, usually like a double bill or something like that. And they would um, sometimes they'd platform a particular filmmaker or they'd get like a couple of filmmakers together. And, but it would also provide a forum for the filmmakers to talk about their work as well. And this eventually leads to the Peer Film Festival, which officially launches in 1977. And this still exists to this day. It basically remains kind of a cornerstone event for new talent in uh, Japanese filmmaking, it receives uh, hundreds of submissions uh, every year, um, going all the way back to kind of, yeah, sort of the turn of the 80s. It's been sort of consistently, uh, uh, yeah, showcasing new talent, effectively. I see. So your article goes into the left-wing roots of the paper. Did this impact on self-made films at all, or was this uh, more of a reflection of the content of self-made films? Uh, it's... It's complicated, I suppose. It's well because you had, uh, yes. Yeah, so the Jap- I mean, Japan in the 1960s was very uh, politically charged. You had uh, these sort of the Gakusei Undo, which I mentioned, which were kind of um, well left, um, m- mostly kind of left wing kind of student activists uh, campaigning for kind of various causes. So this included things like uh, Ampol being the the main thing, which was the security pact that the US had with Japan that basically allowed uh, America to kind of keep uh, army and naval bases in, in Japan uh, long after they, they sort of left at the end of the Second World War. Um, so that there was that. Uh, the construction of Narita Airport was kind of a... Um, that was a sort of a, a point of contention at the time because they didn't... Um, uh, when they started construction of that, they didn't consult any of the local people in the villages and the farmers. They just started tearing up the land without uh you know without any sort of consultation from residents 
um, various kind of uh, university-related uh, malfeasances, including kind of like misappropriations of funds and stuff. Um, that all kind of boiled over around sort of 1972, 1973, had a, a number of kind of high-profile incidences where you had activists being, I guess, kind of hypocritically violent, I suppose. So, And you also had various schisms and fractures there that, uh, like, you know, the United Red Army, the, uh, the Japan, the, yeah, the Japan uh, Red Army, these kind of various kind of organizations that were kind of becoming increasingly terroristic. And it kind of got to the point where the general public basically kind of had enough of that, that kind of thing. And so there was a, there was a kind of a weird backlash to that kind of, uh, yeah, to that kind of politicking and, and that kind of activism. But, and so a kind of a new conservatism, um, came over Japan sort of during the 1970s, people start becoming more kind of interested just in their more immediate sphere. They're not really sort of thinking about macro stuff. They're just sort of thinking about getting through their day. Also, this is the time where, uh, you know, the certainly in the 1980s, the economy is starting to kind of skyrocket. And you've got things like the, uh, uh, the bubble era and things like that. So people were more sort of focused on their own personal success rather than sort of bigger uh, kind of political agendas, I suppose. But then having said that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the self-made filmmakers that kind of emerged in the 70s and 80s, it doesn't mean that they weren't necessarily interested in left-wing ideas. Um, but they, but instead, they, I think they found the kind of the way in which the, the previous generation were kind of going about enacting those ideas, I think they kind of took issue with. But it's also true that... Um, a little bit like the the overall kind of zeitgeist of the time, self-made films um, were turning more towards kind of personal interests and personal subjects. Uh, but that's also that's also kind of partly because that that's kind of easy. It's an easier thing to make films about when you're kind of a new filmmaker, kind of starting out, because there's that the old adage of you know you sort of write about what you know. And I think a lot of the filmmakers then, a lot of the filmmakers at the time, uh, uh, yeah, kind of followed yeah sort of followed through on that, but. Um, I mean, there is, I mean, in some of these films, you know, politics is kind of lurking within it, but it, it's more of a, it takes more of a backseat compared to, say, uh, a lot of the avant-garde or experimental filmmaking, and even a lot of uh, studio filmmaking that was going on in the 1960s. Obviously, uh, Oshima Nagisa is kind of always cited as, a, as, a, as an example of, of a, uh, a director, like, making films for Shochiku, like Cruel Story of Youth, Night in Japan, films like that, that have a very strong kind of uh, political bent, very, uh, very sympathetic to the left, to the sort of the left-wing activism, but also very kind of critical of it at the same time. And so these filmmakers, the self-made filmmakers that uh, arose afterwards, they kind of, they liked those films. Uh, so they weren't, so it's, it's a little bit, you can't necessarily frame it uh, purely as a kind of a reaction against the previous generation they um weirdly if anything the the previous generation didn't like what the new the newer filmmakers were doing because there was that thing of oh, why aren't you you know you should be more political why aren't you making films that try to sort of you know change you know change minds or or you know further the cause and that sort of thing so actually there was kind of weirdly the older generation were kind of frustrated by the newer generation's lack of engagement in that respect Interesting. So what opportunities does self-made film culture provide that the established film industry or even the independent film industry, as you mentioned earlier, in Japan does not? 
Yeah, so I guess one thing is that it was you could make films on your own terms. So a lot of these were made for love uh, rather than money, although some self-made filmmakers would actually find ways of making money with their films because obviously they're, they're organizing their own screenings and they would sort of, you know, their screenings weren't free to attend. So they would uh, find ways of getting a little bit of income uh, from their filmmaking, but then usually any money that they made from their screenings, they usually just all put back into making more films. So it's not uh, a profit driven thing necessarily. And also, but I think the main appeal of it was for people to be able to make films instantly and not sort of spend years um, toiling away as an apprentice at a studio. Well, I mean, they didn't really have much, in the 1970s, a, a lot of new filmmakers didn't have that choice. Because uh, traditionally, uh, when you, if, for, for someone in Japan to basically have a career in the film industry, in the old days, you would join a studio uh, like Toho or Shochiku or Nakatsu. You would join one of those studios as kind of an apprentice and you'd sort of slowly work your way up the ladder. So that would usually mean, you know, you'd write scripts for other filmmakers, for other directors. You'd work as an assistant director for other, other directors as well. And this is something that this sort of master apprentice kind of paradigm was rife for, uh, throughout uh, the Japanese film industry since the formation of the studio system sort of in the 1920s. And, but by 1970, uh, because of a, well, a very large downturn in the Japanese film industry. You know, people weren't going to the cinema as much anymore. Um, so films, they had to sort of, you know, uh, studios were starting to slash their budgets. Uh, but I mean, by the early 70s, two of the six big studios had already sort of declared bankruptcy. And uh, Nikatsu at that point had kind of recalibrated itself to make kind of uh, sort of soft core sex films as a way of kind of surviving. So by the sort of turn of the 70s, those kind of apprenticeship opportunities just didn't exist anymore, which basically meant that a, a new, this sort of new generation of aspiring filmmakers sort of coming up didn't have a way of kind of learning things through official channels. I mean, there were some alternatives. So you had um, uh, the pink film industry, which was a kind of a soft core sex film industry, kind of like a second film industry almost, which was uh, made up of lots of sort of smaller companies so this is when we are going back to that idea of dokuritsu uh, pink film at the time would have been considered a, a sort of dokuritsu kind of ega in that it was kind of uh, made outside of the studio kind of context but still was um bound to certain professional practices so by the 19s by the early 1970s this kind of this sort of uh, ragtag kind of uh, alternative film industry had already started to kind of take on a lot of the uh, uh, procedures of the studio film industry. So they they had they had their, they started to develop their own apprenticeship system, for example. But you'd still have to work, you know, three to five years working as an assistant on pink films before you then you could then start to make your own films. So there was a kind of an instantaneity about self-made film. That I think appealed to a lot of a lot of filmmakers of that generation, just wanting to do things for kind of intrinsic, autotelic kind of reason. So it was just a kind of, I fancy making a film, and you just go out with some friends with a camera, come up with an idea, and you just sort of shoot it. Um, another advantage was that late uh, because you're operating outside of the uh, outside of the the sort of the film industrial complex of Japan. You're also not bound by a lot of its rules in terms of subject matter. 
So self-made filmmakers could engage in topics that were considered a bit more taboo uh, at the time. So things that I guess were mainstream film and television in Japan just didn't touch at the time uh, at all. So um, uh, LGBT subjects, for example, but also um, stylistic kind of choices, like for instance, having uh, full nudity in film. So there's a couple of eight millimeter films, uh, sort of issue films that just have naked people in them. And even there's even uh, one or two that I've discovered that have kind of like unsimulated foreplay and sort of sexual activity, which again, in a main, you know, in a mainstream film context, that just be not permissible at all. And so self-made filmmakers, because they weren't screening their films in theaters as well, and to screen their films in a cafe or in a basement somewhere or, uh, or uh, somebody's apartment, yeah, you could sort of engage in those subjects without having the erin, which is basically sort of Japan's equivalent of the BBFC in Britain or the MPAA in America. You didn't have that because they weren't showing in a kind of a, in an official exhibition kind of context. You could kind of evade, uh, you know, sort of censorship kind of regulations. And also another, th- and I guess to tie in on that, self-made filmmakers didn't have to worry about kind of commercial pressures. So their films could be as long or as short as they wanted to be. So you'd have some films are only like a couple of minutes. Some, uh, I mean, I've seen some, some of these millimeter films, you know, sort of can be sort of two to three hours long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess uh, finally, and I think this, work, I think it kind of goes back to kind of my initial kind of point it was just an opportunity to kind of learn the craft and to sort of experiment because again, those, those opportunities kind of weren't those sort of training opportunities weren't uh, available in the 1970s. That's gotten better in recent years, but certainly when this kind of movement sort of first sort of commenced in the mid seventies, that those kind of options were very, were very sparse. I mean, there was a, um, a film, uh, uh, Imamura Shohei, a very, very um, famous uh, Japanese film director. He started a film school, in 1975, but that was literally the only, at the time, it was literally the only film school in Japan. So places were, is a very, you know, it was very exclusive at the time. And so demand was in excess of supply, let's say, in terms of people wanting to train. I mean, television was another kind of outlet. Uh, so a lot of, a lot of aspiring filmmakers would sort of work in television, working on uh, commercials or documentaries. But then they, but the problem then in the, in the sort of, in the television realm, they couldn't make the stuff that they wanted to make. So they could sort of learn about stuff. But then if you wanted to make your own thing uh, at the time, you had to sort of pick up, you know, like a, like a Super 8 camera or something like that. See. So do you have any personal favorites in this genre of film? Yeah, there's a, there's a few that uh, I'm quite keen on. Uh, I, both of them I mentioned in the article, actually. So one of them uh, is a film called uh, The Adventure of Dentro Kozol. Uh, by Sukumoto Shinya. So that was made, uh, that was, uh, Sukumoto has become um, very famous. Well, I say very famous, but more certainly uh, is a regular fixture in the film festival circuit. Uh, directed films, went on to direct films like uh, Tetsuo, The Iron Man, uh, Tokyo Fist, A Snake of June, and more recently films like uh, Kotoko and uh, Killing. Uh, but this is his kind of last eight millimeter film, but it, it kind of, um, um, I guess why I sort of pick that is that it kind of um, showcases the imagination that was kind of on that was that that this kind of mode of filmmaking kind of allowed. So there's lots of um, uh, Sukumoto kind of pioneered this kind of um, 
very kind of erratic, frenetic style of uh, pixelation, which is the sort of uh, stop motion animation, but you're animating live action subjects. So you get an actor to stand in the road and strike a pose. You take a frame, they move a little bit, take another frame, move a little bit, take another frame. And Dendral Kozo has all those kind of techniques in it. So the, the film is actually, it's kind of like a science fiction time travel vampire movie on top of that as well. So it's, um, it's uh, kind of about a sort of a high school student who accidentally goes forward in time by 25 years or so and finds that sort of Tokyo has basically become this dystopic, hellish place uh, where there are these kind of vampires that are kind of basically in control of the city and he, he fights the vampires, basically. So it's very, yeah, very, a very sort of simple kind of narrative, but very sophisticated in its, in its construction and its use of kind of practical visual effects and, and things like that. Um, the bonus of that, uh, for anyone who is kind of curious to sort of watch any of these films, this film's actually quite easy to get hold of. Uh, it's available on Blu-ray in the UK. Um, you can, it's available in, um, I think it was earlier this year, um, there's a company called Third Window Films that releases a lot of Japanese films. They um, uh, Early in the year, they released a kind of a Sukamoto set. It's just called Sukamoto, which has a number of his, his films as part of that set, and then Jokozo is in there. So it's a great, it's a great starting. If for anyone uh, listening who's kind of interested in uh, exploring these films, that's a very easy to access entry point as well. Because another, another problem with with these films is that they're they're quite difficult to get hold of. Mm-hmm. And as part of my research, you know, I, I had to sort of go to Japan to watch some of these films. Some of them are available on home on in home media. In Japan, so it involves you know you can import some of this stuff, but then it's not very English friendly for those who are not super confident with the language. But yeah, Venture Down Chicozo is a great kind of English friendly uh, DIY spec- spectacular kind of a film. So that's a film that I would sort of recommend checking out. Uh, another film that I, another sort of Jishuega that I'm, I'm very kind of fond of for very different reasons is uh, another film I mentioned in the article called Heart Beating in the Dark by uh, Nagasaki Shinichi, which he made um, very quickly. I think he, he shot in about a week, I think, in 1982. And that demonstrates that these films could actually also deal with kind of serious subjects and are actually more, you know, they're more than a folly or you can actually use the 8mm format to make kind of serious, more kind of serious kind of films. So um, the film is about a kind of a young couple who are kind of on the run, although we're not told why uh, to begin with. Uh, they kind of end up, most of the film consists of these two actors in, a, in an empty apartment. And over time, the reason why, why they're kind of on the run kind of becomes apparent. And there's this kind of resentment between the two. I don't really want to spoil it too much in case anyone is able to see it. So this one's a bit more difficult to find. You can get it on DVD in Japan, but it doesn't have any uh, English subtitles. But um, very kind of Brechtian, very, yeah, very minimalist. So you'll have things like the, uh, the two actors will kind of do monologues, but they'll kind of play each other's characters and things like that. So it's a very, uh, yeah, very interesting film. And then those two actors then, uh, it helped kind of launch their careers as well. So it's uh, Naito Takashi and Nomura Ishigaru. So they've both kind of become professional actors sort of in the wake of the success of this film. It actually screened at the, as I mentioned in the article, it screened at the London Film Festival in 1984 and it was kind of the first sort of Jishuega to kind of get yeah, to screen in 
in in in London and uh, Nagasaki kind of attended was able to come over and attend the event but because they couldn't um because of the eight millimeter format they couldn't uh, add subtitles to the film because how do you kind of print subtitles on, a, on an eight millimeter film so um a uh, very well-known film critic, Tony Raines, who kind of discovered the film, uh, has written for Sight and Sound for many years, among other, among other, and uh, Time Out as well, actually, thinking about it, uh, among other publications. He kind of provided a kind of a live narration of the film as it was screening so that people could kind of understand it, which is kind of interesting because it, it's kind of reminiscent of how silent, Japanese silent cinema used to operate because in those days you'd have someone called a benshi who was kind of like a an, an orator who would sort of, as the film plays, they would sort of uh, explain the film, but they would kind of add a lot of their own insights and stuff into it as well, in, instead of using music. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so they're, I guess they're kind of like my two favourites of Jishu filmmaking. Uh, I mean, there's loads. I mean, there's loads of others that are kind of interesting as well. Uh, Ishisago's early eight millimeter films are worth checking out if you can. So that's films like uh, Panic High School and Charge Hooligans of the Cutter, which are very much emulate it's kind of ishii kind of emulating his favorite action films so like kind of like yakuza gangstery type things and like lots of like teenagers running around with uh prop guns and stuff and he kept getting when he was making charge lugans for casa he kept getting the police kept getting called on him because obviously neighbors would look out the window see these kind of like uh you know, people just all wandering around on the street, like we with these like fake rifles and things, and not obviously not thinking. Obviously, they they look at that and think, assume the worst, and resolve. Sort of, yeah, so he'd get the police called in on him lots of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Son of Shion's early eight millimeter films are sort of worth checking out as well if you can. Uh, but another, uh, but something that is, I guess, more ex- uh, would be more accessible to to uh, to listeners is. Um, the early professional features of these filmmakers are worth checking out as well, because as the seventies goes into the eighties, and this is partly due to the PF film festival as well. Some of these filmmakers would then start getting professional opportunities to kind of work in, in, I guess the sort of the post studio film industry of Japan in the 1980s. And some of these are more, uh, uh are easier to get hold of. So, uh, films like a uh, birth city, which is also by Ishii, which is this kind of, huge kind of uh it's a huge punk rock kind of mess of a film where he got lots of his favorite bands to be in the film it's kind of like a like a mad max kind of you know set in a desolate near future of you know punk gangs roaming the wastelands kind of film uh, you can get that on that's available on blu-ray in the uk and america and canada as well through uh, arrow video uh, another film that's another early professional film I'd recommend also is uh, the Legend of the Stardust Brothers by uh, Tezuka Makoto. This was really a uh, third window released this as well last year, I think. Uh, I mentioned Tezuka in the article as well, so he was very much enamoured with people like Steven Spielberg and and filmmakers like that. So he would sort of make little film like little homages to to those types of films. But yeah, Stardust Brothers is kind of um, uh, I guess a more original thing. It's kind of a kind of a musical, but kind of like a but it's sort of based on a soundtrack that existed before the film was made. So a musician whose name escapes me now basically made a, like a fake soundtrack and then Tezuka then adapted that into a film. So kind of doing it the wrong way around, but that's, um, but that's available in Blu-ray as well, which is that's a, it's a fun film uh, to watch as well. So I guess for those 
who want to sort of take a bit of a dive into this kind of Jishu filmmaking scene, but also some of the early professional work that uh, that these filmmakers would sort of go on to do in the 1980s. I guess they, those would be my my picks. It's a good starting pack. Well, thanks for taking the time to join me today, Mark. Before we finish the episode, can you share with us any projects you're currently working on? Uh, yeah, I have a, sort of doing a few things for other people at the moment. Uh, one of those is a chapter for a book uh, called Punk Identities, Punk Utopias, Global Punk and Media, which is it's about to be published by Intellect. It's available in paperback in December, I think, but the EPUB and PDF version came out, I think, just a, just a week or two ago. I have a chapter in that called uh, Keeping Japanese Punk Film Alive. Uh, Shoujin Fukui's concert screening hybridity in Japanese lifehouse culture. And uh, yeah, Fukui was another one of these uh, Jishu filmmakers, but his kind of, um, I think this speaks a little bit more to my thesis, which has been more orientated around, orientated around how these filmmakers kind of engage with punk. So it's kind of an offshoot of that, I suppose. I'm putting the finishing touches on uh, another chapter for another book, which is actually all about heart beating in the dark, actually, which I sort of talked about earlier. And, uh, and that film and then another film that Nagasaki then went on to make that's also called Heart Beating in the Dark, which is a kind of a sequel slash remake slash making of documentary, all kind of rolled into one that kind of speaks to the original film. So I, I've, I've, uh, yeah, I've just all written a chapter about that. I'm not sure when that book will be available. I think that might be, I'm guessing, sometime next year at the earliest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at some point, I want to also, well, well, uh, when I find the time, I also want to adapt my thesis into a book as well um, about, yes, yeah, so about um, Japanese film production, yes, or during the punk era. So that will kind of incorporate Jishu filmmaking. Then also that kind of, uh, as I was sort of, when I was sort of listing some recommendations, those kind of like early career sort of features as well. So, you know, Burst City would be a, a huge part of that, for example. Um, so that's something I, I'm kind of interested in doing as well. But I also, at some point, I want to try and write second book which is a more of a broader story about this kind of era so uh, very similar in terms of narrative to what i kind of historicize in the peer article but from kind of the, f- the filmmakers end rather than from the from the magazine's end if that makes sense so mm-hmm. more of a yeah about the different kind of community the different sort of filmmaking communities uh sort of the key filmmakers that kind of emerged um what were they about you know what were they kind of responding to like how these films are made so i haven't quite decided on i guess how to um funnel that into a kind of into a cohesive uh book length kind of piece but uh that's something i'm, I'm kind of looking why i want to sort of do as well but that may involve having to go to japan again to do some more digging reach out to some more filmmakers and, and that sort of thing great well thank you for taking the time to join me today mark it's been a real pleasure yeah well thank you